So we are, we're going to kick off our new series, which I'm looking forward to. Um, you know, we regularly at Mind Life, um, every year or so, we'll, we'll make sure each year we take time to go through a whole book of the Bible. So I think it's a really good habit. It's a good discipline to be in. So actually, let's just really get... Um, it's good to teach sort of thematically sometimes, but it's good also to actually let's let's take a book of the Bible and let's really dive into it. And so we're going to look at um, a specific book. We're going to go all the way through it. Um, it's all right that it's only two chapters long. It's quite a little one. Um, so we're going to look at the prophet um, Haggai, which is in the Old Testament. And obviously the, the prophetic book, so Haggai is a specific man who lived in a specific time period and he was speaking a specific message to a specific people, right? We get that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not an awful lot for us to learn and glean from it today. And so what I want to do today is, is set the scene a little bit and kind of put some, I suppose, put some things out there that hopefully will kind of set things up for the rest of the series as we unpack kind of through the chapters and through the verses, actually what, what was going on. Um, and the thing we need to remember when, we, um, you know, when we're looking through the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where someone's like, how you know, how's this relevant? What does this mean? What does this, how does this land with me? Um, it's really important we remember this. In Romans um, 15, verse 4, Paul says this, for everything that was written in the past um, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Right, so I want to encourage you. My expectation for kind of as we set off into this new series looking through Haggai is yes, this was written two and a half thousand years ago, but actually, you and I are going to be encouraged and we can have endurance and we can have hope because of what was written back then. So I'm excited about it. So I'm going to pray and then, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that you spoke back then and thank you that you still speak today. Um, and Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd help us to have open ears and an open heart and that we would hear clearly. God, I ask for each individual here, they would hear so clearly what you are saying to them this morning. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, let's do a little bit of history. Is that all right? I want to set the scene historically. So if you, um, I would encourage you, if you want to look at the sort of the historical setting, if you want to kind of read a bit about, okay, what was going on, what was happening, then jump into Ezra, okay? The book of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, two historical books in the Bible that basically describe what was going on back then so particularly Ezra verses one chapter one to six kind of sets the scene for where Haggai shows up okay so Haggai appears in Ezra chapter five but if you want to have a read of it I'd encourage you to do that so the story essentially let me give you a really potted history so when you know, they'd been the the Jews had been set free from Egypt they'd come back miraculously into the promised land and they'd kind of had lots of twos and fro's and ups and downs and then there was this golden period in Israel's history when King David was on the throne, followed by his son, Solomon. And it was, you know, peace reigned and there was prosperity and, and life was good. And it, it was really, but it really was only in the life of those two kings. Um, and for hundreds of years after that, um, you read in the book of two chronicles and then in second half of one kings and the rest of two kings, you see basically this cycle of good king, bad king, following God, rebelling against God, repenting again, following God, like just goes round and round in circles, this toing and froing all the time. And there's this consistent warning from the prophets reminding them that, listen, there is a covenant you've made with God that requires faithfulness on your part. And actually there's this warning that if you are unfaithful, um, stuff's going to go wrong. And so there's this constant reminder, constant warning. Um, and then in Jeremiah 25, this is one of the specific warnings, if you like, um, it, you know, God says, listen, because you've not listened, I've kept coming to you, I've kept warning you, but because you've not listened, this whole land is going to be desolate and you'll serve Babylon for 70 years. So there's a specific warning of this 70-year period in, in Babylon if they were unfaithful. But they persist. They keep following their own ways. Um, and so in 586, eventually, what's been 
they've been warned about happens. Um, and Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, big, powerful kingdom, and he'd come twice before 586 and kind of conquered Jerusalem and put their own king in place and taken some into exile. But 586 was kind of the end of it, really. So Jerusalem's totally conquered. The um, temple is completely destroyed and they carry away everything that's in it. And they carry away the vast majority of the people of Israel as well. So they're taken away into exile. So from the sort of golden age of David's reign, this is like, this is the low, the really low time. They were taken into exile. But, but even in that context, even in the, you know, the real lows, there was always the promise. And if you look through the prophetic books, there's these warnings of what would come from unfaithfulness, but there's always that promise of return, always a promise that God wants to restore, always a promise that God wants to bring them home again. But essentially, that's what happens. 586 BC, they're taken off into exile to Babylon, which is about 900 or so miles away from Jerusalem. So miles and miles away from home. Um, And Jerusalem is totally destroyed. And they're there for a long time. But then in 538 BC, there's a new king. So the Babylonian Empire has been conquered by the Persian Empire. And we have King Cyrus, king of the Persians, is now ruling in Babylon. And it says, in right at the beginning of Ezra um, chapter 1, it says that the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. So this is an ungodly king, doesn't, you know, doesn't serve God, but God does something in him, stirs his heart. And so he makes this decree across the whole of his nation that anybody who serves the God of Israel, they can go home. It's an amazing story. And not only can they go home, but he says to the people in Babylon, and by the way, I want you to give them gold and silver. I want, to give them, I want you to give them a whole load of good stuff as they go. It's a crazy story. Um, but that's what happened. So 538 BC, the exiles begin to return home, back to Jerusalem. And when they get there, they start off really well. They start off straight away. Um, they rebuild the altar and start offering sacrifices again to God. And in the next year, 537, um, they laid some foundations to rebuild the temple. But then you read through the sort of chapters three and four in Ezra that there's, there's loads of opposition. So local people on the ground um, kind of discourage them. They make accusation about them. They're kind of continually trying to stop this work and discourage them. And so, so much so to the point in Ezra 4, 24, it says the work on the house of the Lord um, in Jerusalem came to a standstill. So the work stopped. So they'd laid the foundation of the temple. There'd been so much opposition that everything stopped. So the work stops um, for 14 years. So then it says until the second year of the reign of Darius, who was the next king of Persia after Cyrus. So 14 years pass. Basically, everything is hit pause on this rebuilding. And, And the people have just got caught up with life and kind of rebuilding their houses and farming and raising their families. And, and they got used to life without the temple. They'd come home, they'd laid some foundations and then paused. Um, and this is, where, this is where we find ourselves with Haggai. So 14 years later, the second year of Darius's rule, which is 520 BC, okay, Haggai appears. He's raised up by God and he starts speaking to Israel through his series of messages between August and December of that year. So it's quite a short period of time. And he's, um, he's a, one of the most blessed prophets because he actually got to deliver his message, see the people hear it, believe it, respond to it, and see the fulfillment of it all in his lifetime because he brings the messages in 520 BC and they restart the work on the temple. Five years later, it's finished. So he sees it happen. So that's the, that's the potted history, if you like, of where we find ourselves. So, so what? You might be asking, you know, why does, you know, rebuilding a temple thousands of miles away, two and a half thousand years ago, why on earth is that of any interest or relevance to me? I'm hopeful I'll convince you that it is. It's of incredible importance for us. Um, Because the thing is, when we're looking at the Bible, it's really important, I think, 
we, we do understand a little bit about the context. We do understand what was happening there and then. So in that particular period of history, like what was happening there and then? Like it's, I think it's helpful to know that. But if that's all we know, then that's, you know, that's uninteresting. And it doesn't, it's not going to change us. You know, and I, I want the Bible to change me. I don't want to read it because it's interesting. I want to read it and be changed by it. And so we also need to know, well, what does it mean here and now? How does what was happening then, a rebuilding of a temple in a foreign country, what does that mean for us here and now? And I want to say essentially this, and I'm setting the scene, that really the story of Haggai is, is about understanding um, God's master plan. God is the master builder, sovereign over history. God who has a plan. And so I want to look at three things. Firstly, God has a plan. Secondly, that he is committed to his plan. And thirdly, that you and I absolutely have a place in his plan. So let's have a look at those things. God has a plan, and God is enthroned above history. He's sovereign over all creation. He's got a plan. He always has had a plan. He's made specific promises to individuals, to nations, and to the whole of mankind. He's got absolute purpose for us, for humanity, for the earth. So there's this there's plan, and there's promise, and there's purpose from this sovereign God. And it's, it's yes for mankind as a whole, but it is also for us as individuals. And it's important we hold both of those two things together. And we don't just think, you know, God is, is sovereign over history and he's got a plan for mankind and I am like a, you know, a puppet on a string or a, a pawn on a chessboard with no, like it doesn't, it, there's no influence for me or it doesn't mean anything to me. It's all very big picture and, you know, we're just irrelevant in, in the middle of it. Does that make sense? Like, that's not it. Yes, God has a plan for mankind, but he is deeply concerned with us as individuals. But equally, it is important that we don't just become so self-absorbed with what's going on in my life this week in Manchester that actually I don't, I lose sight on the fact of the fact that yes, God cares about me as an individual, and yes, he has a plan for me as an individual, but it actually is not all about me. I am not the center of history and the universe. Like, it really isn't all about me or you. Like, God has a big plan that overarches it. And we're, but the thing is, it's not, a, it's not a plan that if, you know, God's made a plan and if it goes a bit awry, he's like, oh, well, that would have been nice, but never mind. You know, God is absolutely committed to fulfilling his purpose, to being faithful for his promises and to seeing his plan outworked. God, he, like, he's committed to his plan. And his purpose. So if you read in, in Jeremiah 25, that's the bit we, we looked at that where there was this warning, listen, you've not listened and there's going to be 70 years in Babylon. There's this warning. Four chapters later in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, it says this, this is what the Lord says, when the 70 years are completed. So this is before they've even gone into exile, there's, but there's this promise of a return. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and I will fulfill my good promise. Like the exile wasn't the end of the story. That didn't derail God's plan. He was still saying, even before that, I'm going to fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse, don't we? Classic Christian Bibles, you know, posters with kittens on and that sort of thing. I love that verse. Right? That was given to people who were about to be exiled for a generation but even in that, there's this promise of restoration and a, and a faithful God who's saying, I have got a plan and I'm absolutely committed to my plan, my purpose and my promise. Absolutely. He'll bring them back, is what he was saying. And this is the thing I love, like God, God doesn't give up on us and he doesn't give up on his plan for us. 
Like he pursues us. He pursues you and I and goes after, I'm going to fulfill this. Even when we get it wrong and go our own way, God's heart is to restore and rebuild and, and reset us according to his purpose and plan. And so that's why he sent Haggai. Like the reason God raises up prophets is because he's committed to his people and his plan. So he sent Haggai to stir the people up and encourage them and challenge them, saying, listen, guys, you've stopped, you've hit pause. It's time to go again. It's time to get this temple built. That's essentially what Haggai was, was raised up to do. As an example of God's commitment to his plan, it was time to go again, essentially. That event, if you want to sum up Haggai's message, is this, God has a plan, it's time to go again. Let's go for it. Um, God hadn't given up on his plan. He's committed to his plans. And thirdly, the truth is this, you and I have a place in his plan. Like I said, it's not just this huge, great, big master plan that you know, we don't have any place in. Now, God has a glorious plan for us, for mankind, you know, for the, for the restoration of his church, of his people, and the fulfillment of his promises. It's, and it is a big plan. It absolutely is for the whole of creation and for all nations. And it started off, and this is where we need to understand in the Old Testament, his big plan, his sovereign plan, it, it started off with a people, the people of Israel. But it wasn't ever to end with them. It was always to go through them to every nation. And likewise, you know, his plan initially was for Jerusalem. That was the place where he was going to build his temple. Where he said it was going to be a place for my name and my presence will dwell there. It was to start. His plan was for a city, but from that city to go to the ends of the earth. But it is, it's a big corporate plan because it is encompassing everything and everyone. But individual people have a place in that plan. And individual people have a, a responsibility and a role to play. You know, some, sometimes we can think, you know, God is over all of history and, and I have, you know, and I'm, it, it's going to happen regardless. And almost a bit of a fatalistic kind of, well, God will do what he wants to do. No, God is committed to partnering with people to see his purposes for the earth fulfilled. He always has. And so we have a, we have a role to play. And so Haggai's role to play was popping up in Israel and saying, guys, it's time to build. It's time to rebuild. It's go again. The foundation are laid, but that is not the end of the story. Like foundations are pointless if there's nothing built on them. So Haggai's role was to kind of stir them up. And then we see Joshua, who's the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was of David's line as a leader. They had roles to play. And we're going to look at some of the other characters in other weeks. But, you know, the other people who had a part to play was the people who Haggai was speaking to. So the, you know, everyday Joe Bloggs, in the people of Israel, who actually had to hear and believe and receive that word from the Lord in terms of rebuild and do something about it. You know, God's sovereign will to rebuild the temple did not just mean all of a sudden there's a temple built. It meant individual men and women and children saying yes and putting their hand to the task. So there was a role for individuals to play. And I want to take a sidestep for a moment and have a look at um, uh, Daniel in the Bible. It might seem a bit random, but it's not, trust me. Daniel is a beautiful example of an individual person, one man positioned somewhere who had a dramatic effect, I think, in seeing the plan of God fulfilled and this relationship between God's sovereign plan and individuals, people's part to play. So Daniel was 
Do you remember I said, can we throw that timeline back up? Here we go. So the exile, 586, okay, that was the, the last gasp, if you like. So Jerusalem is conquered, the temple is completely destroyed, and they're all shipped off into exile. But if we go back this way a little bit, there were two other times before that. Do you remember I said where Babylon had come and conquered Jerusalem, and they'd taken, on those, they'd taken some people off into exile. So in 605 BC, which of course is that way, earlier, I get so muddled with BC and AD, but earlier... Earlier than the final exile, um, it says um, that some young noblemen were taken into exile. Daniel was one of them, okay? So Daniel was taken into exile, into Babylon, but before the, the main exile in 586. That makes sense, okay? So Daniel ends up as a young nobleman in exile. And we know the stories, you know, we know the fiery furnace, we know the lions and all the rest of it. Um, but we need to remember that Daniel was there as a, under an ungodly king, unrighteous side. If you read a little bit about the Babylonian Empire, it was not a fun place to be. Okay, and he was there and he was, it says in chapter 9 of Daniel, if you read, it says that Daniel was, you know, he'd been serving there. This is 539, so that's a long time, 66 years he'd been there. But he was made, the Bible says, he was made of one of three chief ministers in Babylon. So he's like high up in government, in ruling, one of three. And so much so, it says in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel so distinguished himself that the king's plan was to set him over the whole kingdom. So not just, not just one of three, but actually to be over the whole kingdom. And that didn't go down well with some of the others, and so they make accusations, and that's when the whole lion's thing happened. Um, but it says this, that Daniel greatly prospered under the reign of Darius and Cyrus. Okay. So let's, let's come jump back into the story. 539 BC. So that is one year before the exiles returned. Happy? You on track? It says this, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Read Daniel chapter 9. It's fascinating. Daniel is reading from Jeremiah, and it literally says in the Bible, Daniel's, he's talking the first person, I was reading from Jeremiah, and I realized the 70 years were nearly up. And so, and then, it, then there's the rest of the chapter is this incredible prayer. Daniel gets on his knees and intercedes. He suddenly has his eyes open to God's promise is, listen, you're going to go back. And so he's there with the exiles. He's seen them all come and happen. And, but he, he sees this. He reads the word of the Lord. He believes it. And then he intercedes and says, God, you've said that we'd go home. God, you said there'd be a return. One year later, 538 BC, Cyrus it says in Ezra 1, the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus and he makes this decree for the exiles to go home. Now listen, it doesn't say this directly, but I am convinced, and I find it so exciting and fascinating, I am convinced Daniel's position, his faithful service and his, like his favour, his position in that kingdom and his faithful prayers and consistent intercession I think was part of why the Lord stirred and how the Lord stirred Cyrus' heart to let people go. Like, it was one man. And by this time, he was an old man. So he'd been there 66 years. We know he'd been in exile. And it says he was taken into exile as a young man. We don't know exactly how young. But he was well into his late 70s, maybe even 80s. And as far as we know, like, Daniel didn't go back. As far as we know, he wasn't one of the ones returned. But I think his life and his prayers, his standing on the word of God and praying it and believing it, I think was pivotal in shifting history. It changed, you know, his, that changed something spiritually that actually the heart of an ungodly king was so changed, so turned, that he said, all of you people go. Like, that's amazing. 
One man, it's incredible. Actually, he had incredible influence. So God's plan, remember, this is the thing I want you to see. God's plan and purpose was 70 years and yet you'll go home. But Daniel had to take his place to to believe that, to stand on that, and to pray for it. And there are some people in this room, you need to know, your prayers of intercession are shifting things dramatically. And you might not know it yet, you might not see it yet, but it changes things massively. So we have to understand that God's sovereign plan doesn't mean we don't have individual responsibility and influence in this big story. And I love it. Think about other people. Think about Susanna Wesley, right? We know the Wesley brothers, John Wesley, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley wrote amazing hymns. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, was was a revivalist in, in England and you know, not only saw you know, a, a new life of the spirit and the church revive, but actually saw incredible social change and reform as a basis of his life. Like amazing, amazing legacy what he did. But Susanna Wesley was his mum. If you read a little bit about her, she sounds like an absolute hero. She had seven, 17 or 19, I forget, 17 or 19 children. Um, only 10 of them passed, uh, only 10 of them lived beyond infancy. Married to a guy who was absent quite a lot of the time. So she's raising 10 children an awful, you know, a lot of the time on her own. So not, you know, this is before washing machines and dishwashers and supermarkets. Like, so she was doing all of that stuff with 10 children pretty much on her own. And if you read some of her kind of, like her, the, the sort of principles and the way she ran her home and her family, it's amazing. So she was, one of the things she was committed to doing was she would have one-to-one time with every one of her children every week. She'd like schedule it in. And I'm like... Man, hats off. I've got two kids, and that feels a bit tricky. You had 10. That's amazing. She was faithful in her prayers, and she would teach them the scriptures. She really poured into her children a love of the word of God, a faith in God, and, and a being powerful prayers. John and Charles Wesley changed things in England, but their mother's life and ministry and prayers and pouring into them I wonder I'm sure at times gosh you know I'm sure at times she felt like this you know where's this even going like in in the immediacy of trying to raise 10 kids and husbands not around and you know points they they had two houses burned to the ground they lost everything they went bankrupt at least twice her husband was thrown into prison because their debts were so high like the immediacy of life But actually, she was so faithful to do what she was called to do in the position that she was called to. And her life, through the life of two of her sons particularly, changed a nation. And we have to have our eyes open to this big sovereign plan of God. But listen, you and I get to show up and change things. And it can be the little things. Do you remember a few weeks ago, Phil told the story about we were doing some outreach in, in Whitworth Park. And we were giving out some little chocolate eggs with a little card and just saying to people, listen, you need to really know God loves you. And it was just one of the, sometimes we'd done outreach, we'd had loads of testimonies and conversations, get to pray people, and it was amazing. And this was just one of the times when, honestly, it felt like a bit of a flop. It was a bit discouraging. It was like, meh, you know, nothing amazing seemed to happen. But we heard back later that someone we met in the park, who gave, we gave a little chocolate egg and said, hey, I want you to know God loves you. And that, was, that was all we did. It felt so little. Two weeks later, this guy ended up at a, um, a homeless outreach event at King's Church, um, and heard the gospel, was told that God loved him, and they gave him a shower and a haircut and new clothes. And two weeks later, he ended up at the Salvation Army Hostel where a friend of ours, Alan, was working. And Alan got to share the testimony. They said, hey, I need you to really know God loves you. And he said, oh, yeah, I know that. And Alan said, how do you know that? He's like, well, two weeks ago, I went to King's Church, and they gave me a shower, and they gave me clothes, and they told me God loves me. And two weeks before that, I was sat in a park, and I was really lonely, and I was really hungry, and someone gave me a chocolate egg and said, hey, I really need you to know God loves you. 
Four weeks later at the Salvation Army, our friend Alan got to lead him to the Lord. But little things that we do, like it changed the direction of that man's life. And we, I mean, I think that's just God's kindness that we kind of, we heard the end of the story. Because sometimes we don't. We don't actually sometimes know the things that we did and the prayers that we prayed and the, the things we've sort of given to people. We don't know necessarily where that lands, but, but we did them. Let me tell you this one. This, this super excites me. Who's watched, have you seen the, um, anyone seen the film The Darkest Hour? Anybody seen Dunkirk? Like, like I love that period of our history. It's so exciting. If you don't know the story, okay? Early days in World War II, our entire professional army, so over 300,000 men, were stranded on the beaches of northern France, surrounded by the, the Germans, three million people in the German army. Like, the odds were awful, and it looked bleak. Like, it looked bad news. Um, and then Winston Churchill, this is, this is the whole story in, in the, the film, The Darkest Hour, is he, he has this plan, um, and he calls for um, civilian ships anyone's got a civilian boat you know fishing boats pleasure cruises little yachts whatever so this flotilla of 850 little boats go across the channel almost all of the 300,000 men were rescued and and listen this is the bit I'd, I'd I'd forgotten this piece of the story and Richard remind me I don't know if you know this bit because it's it's not in the films and I'm like this needs to be in there do you know one week before the Dunkirk evacuation the king of England called the nation to pray and repent and millions of people this like go and google it have a look online because we need this is our history guys like we read about the israelites crossing the red sea but we have this history as a country so millions of people in the uk and you see there are queues around churches were in churches on their knees praying because we thought listen this the end is up like this and do you know what happened there was randomly an incredible storm that lasted for three days that basically entirely grounded the German Air Force. And otherwise, the German Air Force would have wiped out our soldiers on the beaches. For three days, there was a storm over Belgium where all their airfields were, and they couldn't take off. And then the, the phrase in the, in the newspaper reports is that the channel was unnaturally, unseasonably calm, calmer than it's been in a generation for these 850 boats to go across and rescue the army. Like, that's amazing. And do you know what changed it? A king calling his people to pray, and people saying yes. And then 850 different people with little boats saying, yeah, I'll go. I can probably only fit 10 soldiers on, but yeah, I'll go. Like, and it, it changed the course of our history, literally. Guys, you have, you have amazing possibilities. We have amazing possibilities in our hands to take our place in this, in this master plan that God has. God has a plan He's committed to it, and we have a part to play in it. Let me read this to you. What is the plan, essentially? Ephesians 1, verses 9 to 10, this is the J.B. Phillips translation. It says this, For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it's this. He purposes in his sovereign will that all human history shall be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth will find its perfection and fulfillment in him. That's the plan, Right? That, is the, that is the end goal. That is where all of history is moving towards. Everything in heaven and earth finding its perfection and fulfillment in Jesus. And so when we read Haggai and we read the story two and a half thousand years ago of them rebuilding this temple, we need to understand right then that is moving towards and pointing towards a day of the perfection and fulfillment of all things in Jesus. That's the master plan. 
every single person on earth would find fulfillment in Jesus. That's the plan that you and I get to say yes to and, and take our place to. And for some people, it's the King of England calling a nation to pray. For others of us, it's giving someone in a park an egg. But it makes a difference. And I want us to have our eyes open as we go in through Haggai to understanding this incredible plan and purpose that God has for history. And it points towards something. And one of the things I think is helpful to us understand is that in the Old Testament particularly, because sometimes we can feel there's a big disconnect. And how does that relate to now? And listen, there's, this, there's something that the Bible, that we see in the Bible, which are called types, okay? And it basically is, it's like prophetic symbolism, if you like. So it's something that we read in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant that is actually pointing forwards to something better and greater that is to come. So we read it in Romans, Paul says that Adam is a type, that's where we get the word from, is a type of Jesus. Like there's, there's things, and he says that the law is a shadow of the better thing that was to come. So it's like there's this huge light in the future, and, and there, there are shadows that we can see in the Old Testament. And so this, this period of Israel's history, which is called the Restoration Period, um, where they've come back from exile and they're, and they're rebuilding, and the temple is rebuilt, and then we read on in Ezra that he calls them to a lifestyle of faithfulness and repentance. And it's like, listen, this isn't just a temple, this is about the whole of life. And then Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls, and it's about actually cities need to be changed. Listen, all of that wasn't just something that happened two and a half thousand years ago. That is a type that is pointing forwards to a restoration of a temple and a people and a city. That is the church, the people of God. It's a better thing that gets to come that you and I now, we live in those days. We get to take our place in that part of the master plan that will find fulfillment in Jesus. Does that make sense? So I want you to understand when we're reading Haggai and as we're going through it and looking at the specific lessons and things that we can learn is understanding it in the context of the master plan and understanding that there's, there's echoes, there's shadows, there are these types that we're reading about that actually point to a better day that for now, you and I are the temple of God. So it wasn't, it's not just about, you know, rebuilding a temple and, you know, bricks and mortar two and a half thousand years ago. For us, it points towards this rebuilding of you and I as the temple of God. Let me read from Ephesians 2, verse 19 onwards. says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, all of you, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's how the master plan gets worked out. It's through his body. It's through his church. It's through the people of God being built together on firm foundations with Jesus as the only cornerstone, filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is why I'm so excited to be teaching on this as we're doing our city groups together. And we're looking in city groups at actually being a radical alternative because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because that's the plan. Let me read, um, let me read this quote that's in our inner city groups. It says this, the church has only ever marched to victory through God filling her own ordinary foot soldiers with his own extraordinary Holy Spirit. That's the plan. God's given us this plan and he refuses to fulfill it any other way. So this is where we find ourselves in this, this call to rebuilding but not just a physical temple, a spiritual temple. But again, it's not just about structure. It's about actually being built together to become a place filled with the Spirit of God 
that radically redirects history. And honestly, I don't want to downplay it. Like, that's the call that is on your life and mine, to redirect history. For some of you, you know, for some of us, we're going to redirect the history of one or two people, and it might be our kid, and that's amazing. For some people in this room, it might be redirecting the course of a nation, like, like Daniel, like the king in England. Like, for some, it's, but it, but the, the call is faithfulness to rebuild, to become the temple of God. So I'm, you know, I'm genuinely super excited about what God's going to do over these next few weeks and months with our time on Sunday mornings, but with city groups as well. It's like, this is what God's doing. He's rebuilding and restoring his church. And it is a glorious church, which has such a bright future. And listen, I don't mean structures and all that. Like it's the people of God filled with his spirit, ordinary people like you and I doing extraordinary things to partner with God to see his master plan, his plan and purposes fulfilled for individuals, for cities, for nations. That's the call to rebuild that. So let me land this for you. In Haggai, when he, the scene set, you know, where he, where he comes back, essentially, the work has stalled. So the people, so the exiles had come home, yeah? They'd come home, and they'd relayed the foundations, and then they'd hit pause. And, you know, I wonder whether sometimes it's so easy for us to do the same thing. Like, we've, we've come home, like the Bible talks about, you know, actually when we become Christians that we're saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we're born again, we come home, and we're like, yeah, I've got that bit. And we've, you know, we've laid some foundations. We're like, you know what? Yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I've, I've given my life to Him, and I, you know, I've, I've, there's some good, solid foundations in my life. But then we've hit pause. When actually God wants to build something stunning on the foundations in your life. Foundations are really important, but they are absolutely pointless if there's nothing built on them. They're not an end in themselves. And I just feel like for, for a lot of us, maybe there's that. There's that call to go again, that call to believe and partner with God in that rebuilding with a glorious future in mind. And I, like, I want you to dream big. Like, I want you to have a big expectation of what God is going to do in and through you. Yes, we need to come home. Yes, we need to have firm foundations and we need God to strengthen those things. But it's time to build. And that was Haggai's message. Guys, it's time to go again. It's time to build the temple of the Lord. So I want you to stand in it and I want us to I want to pray for some folks.